0: According to Matthew chapter 26, we will read from God's word beginning in verse 17, a passage drawn from the last night of the Lord during the Last Supper. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 17. When it was evening, he sat at table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, is, it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Is it I, Master? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I shall not drink, it again, drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives,
1: This has been a blessed time. We've been able to sing together and what a blessing it was for the elders to lead us in prayer together. I hope you will be encouraged to realize that God hears those prayers and especially when we come together and pray for one another, the Lord hears and answers those prayers. You're encouraged to share your prayer requests so that they can be remembered before the congregation. Certainly if there's something private that you would not want to have shared with the congregation, you could indicate that and that would be kept among the pastors or the elders, whatever your desire might be. But let us bring our petitions before the Lord and see him begin to do wondrous things. I was struck especially by that request for revival in our nation. Our country has been a history A history marked by revival, by the sweeping of God's spirit across this nation. And I think now is the time. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But let's pray and see if the Lord might not do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think to his own glory in the spreading of the gospel. Now there may be some of you here who are new to the concept of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this service is for you as well. It is for you to have your hearts open to hear and to understand the truth of God and to sense something of the reality of the fact that our God is a reality. He is a true God and a living God, and his power is in our midst to save. You are encouraged to hear the word of God itself, which says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Shall be saved. Whatever your need may be, whether it's a sense of guilt before God for failure in the past, whether it's a sense of frustration over the purpose that you have in your life, whether it's a fear of death and what the other side of death might mean to you, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, tonight we're going to begin a study of the topic of God's covenants. God's covenants. I'm not going to be a roving reporter, but I might wander a little bit back and forth, and this might help a little bit so you don't lose my voice somewhere along the way. Well, why should we study something as esoteric as the covenants? Who even knows what the word means, covenants? Perhaps you've seen on the bulletin of a a subdivision, this is a covenantal arrangement, and you know it means something like contract, but what does that have to do with our daily life and relationship with Almighty God? You know that there are many kinds of problems pressing in upon the world today. A recent survey among evangelical Christians indicated that the greatest sense of need that Christians have right now in the past few months is not training in how to get the gospel out to new people. It's not in terms of how to get things going in the secular world from a Christian perspective. But the greatest need that people feel right now, you see if you can identify with this, is maintaining a sense of personal closeness with God. That was the overwhelming response in terms of the needs that Christians felt right now. Do you identify with that? How difficult it is, especially in the hustle bustle of a metropolitan community like this, to maintain a sense of closeness and communion with Almighty God. So what are we doing talking about covenants in a circumstance like that? Another great area of of concern is the area of family breakup in America today. I don't know the statistics, perhaps some of you know, but it is frightening to see the percentages rising of families that are breaking up very shortly after marriage. One of the most awesomely frightening things is the fact that among young Christian couples you see this plague of divorce spreading in our own midst. How could it be that young Christians committed to the Lord and in good conscience committed to one another should end up in such a short time breaking up their marriage relationship? It's a frightening thing. So, what are we doing talking about covenants when there's such pressing problems in the family circumstance today? And then on the international scene, you read in the newspapers and you hear about the bombing of Tunisia by Israel. And our administration apparently first said we are approving that bombing. And then there was a little backstepping. And then in the United Nations, there was a vote taken in which the United States abstained from voting because apparently we don't know exactly how to view Israel in relation to Tunisia in the 20th century. So with these kinds of things going on and the questions being raised about the nation of Israel and the purpose and plan of God today in the 20th century, we should talk about something so esoteric as covenants? Well, you know where I'm leading you down this little path. Obviously, covenants answer all of these things, and that is one of the amazing things about the concept of the covenant. Whether you are aware of it or not, you should understand that at least 250 times the word covenant is used in the Old Testament. That tells you something about how permeating that concept is through the whole of the Bible. As far as your own personal relationship with God, it is a covenantal bond. And if you want a sense of closeness to God, you find it by understanding and perceiving the covenant that God has established even with sinful men. In terms of family breakups, you know that the Bible speaks of the marriage relationship as a covenant. As a matter of fact, men and women are bound together in the covenant relationship of marriage. And one of the main reasons of the breakup of marriages is because young couples do not understand adequately the biblical concept of the covenant as it relates to their marriage. And if you want to know what's happening with respect to Israel in the 20th century and the purposes of God with his people of old and how we should perceive what is happening in the 20th century with respect to the nation of Israel, obviously you have got to understand God's covenants. If there is confusion in our administration about this question, trying to perceive, maybe even from a Christian perspective, how to respond to the 20th century circumstances of the phenomenon of the nation of Israel being born again, the answer to that comes from an understanding of the covenants. So we are studying covenants, not because it's something that's way out there, something intellectual that might tickle our fancies, but because it's something that is very practical that has to do with the small things of our own personal relationship with God, the very crucial things of our interpersonal relationships in marriage, and the larger purposes of God among the nations of the world today. So those are just some matters in terms of introduction as to why we study covenants. But let's look more specifically at some of the particular helps that a study of the covenants may provide for us in perceiving the Length and height and depth and breadth of the love of God, which is the heart of the covenants, that surpasses human knowledge. Just five quick reasons as to why we should study covenants. And I see a few pens at work here. You're welcome to take some notes down. You know, if you hear something, that enforces it one way. If you write it down, that enforces it another way. Now, of course, if you are of the old school, you know that if you can just hear it and remember it, then you're far better off anyway. Anybody like that left? We've gotten so dependent upon our pens and papers that we can't do anything without writing it down. Oh, woe be me if I don't take a written-out grocery list for three items between (laughs) here and getting home. Okay, here they are. You remember them? With your mind, if, and if you can not do that, then you write them down. First of all, we study covenants because they structure scripture. We study the covenants because they provide a structure, a pattern for understanding scripture. It's been a challenge for us ever since we arrived at Wallace to understand the structure of this building. We know there is one. We come in one door and, why, there's a the sanctuary. We come in another door and we can't find the sanctuary. I still cannot tell you what floor my office is on at this point. I know which door to come in and I have a little path that gets me there. But if you bring me in the wrong door, I couldn't tell you where it is. Now, some people have that feeling about the Bible, You start reading in the book of Judges uh, uh, about some strange things happening and you say, what in the world is going on here? The covenants provide a structure for scripture. Now, for instance, they provide a distinction for for a basis for understanding the distinction between God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. God made a covenant with man, a covenant. With man at creation. God made a covenant with man in redemption. Now, that is a very basic structure, but let me tell you something. If you don't get straight the differences between the covenant bond that God established at creation from that covenant bond that He established at redemption, you know one of the first things that's going to happen? You're going to lose your assurance of salvation. It is very easy to mingle the concept of the covenant of works, as it is called in our Westminster Confession of Faith, with the covenant of grace, as it is called. The covenant of creation with the covenant of redemption. And if you are walking through this world today and are thinking purely and simply in terms of how God has bound himself in covenant with you as a created being and not distinguishing that from the way in which he has bound himself to you as a sinner, Then you really don't understand the most basic structure of the Bible. And you're going to tremble many times in your life because you're going to be unsure that you're saved. Because you're going to revert to those provisions of the original creation covenant. That is, you're going to think that you have to work and perform certain acts of obedience in order to maintain your good relationship with God. And the way to get that matter cleared up is to understand the covenantal distinction between the covenant of creation, the covenant of works, and the covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace. Now, also, very basically, you know, your Bible is divided up between the old and the new. But is it? Old? Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah, we'll take that as a second-rate translation. We don't mean to insult any Bibles or anything like that. But Old Testament and New Testament really refer to Old Covenant and New Covenant. That's a very basic distinction in the Bible between the Old Covenant and the new covenant. And it's very essential that you understand the distinction between the old covenant that had the shadows and the images and the types and the forms and the new covenant that had the realities. There is a church from, with which many of you have first-hand experience that still works in the framework of the old covenant shadows. They have a priesthood, that is set above all the other members of the church of Jesus Christ. They have rituals that that set the priesthood apart from the other members of the body of Christ. One of the basic sources of that misunderstanding is a failure to distinguish between the old covenant that has now passed away and the new covenant in which the shadowed forms and images have been replaced by the realities. So if you're going to read your Bible with any understanding at all, particularly in relating the old covenant to the new, you've got to understand this covenantal concept of the Bible. And of course, the periods in the Bible can be divided in a variety of ways, but the best way to divide them is by the covenants. You're reading along in the book of Chronicles. When, how, how many of you read the, the first nine chapters of the book of Chronicles in their devotionals this morning? Anyone? Last night? He, wow. Praise the Lord. He read all nine chapters? Not nine. Not nine. Okay. He's in first Chronicles. The first nine chapters. Well, it, it takes a little perseverance there. Eh? The first chapter, you've got some genealogy. Well, you can press beyond that. You know that's in Matthew also. The second chapter of 1 Chronicles, another chapter of genealogy. Well, let's push on a little bit. Third chapter, genealogy. Fourth chapter, genealogy. Fifth chapter, genealogy. Six, seven, by now your tongue is panting and you're wondering where you're going to get some spiritual food out of nine chapters straight of genealogy. Well, the covenants will help you understand what's going on here. The book of Chronicles was written after Israel had been taken into exile, where the people had been dispersed and they'd lost their family connections. But the book of Chronicles teaches you, if it teaches you anything, that God deals with families. He is concerned about the generations. One of the meaningful prayers of your elders tonight was about our children. Do you pray about your children's children? Do you pray about your children's children's children? I wonder how many of you, if you trace back, could go all the way back to the Huguenots of France and see the generations in which God's faithfulness to his covenant commitment has been carried right up to now. I have a little prayer book of Matthew Henry that dates back into the 1700s. And it has been passed on in my family for about six generations of those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can understand the value of that kind of thing. You get a whole new orientation in life if you understand that God in his covenants deals with the generations. He has special promises for you and your children even unto a thousand generations. And for you who are not married, don't worry about that. God has wonderful promises to you also. You're in the household of faith. And Isaiah says, I'm going to give to the eunuchs of my household a name that shall be memorialized and never be forgotten. And you will have a seed that cannot be numbered, a spiritual seed bound up in the promises of the generations of God. So you need to study the covenants so you can get aware of what is going on in the Bible in terms of its structure. That's only reason number one. Reason number two here why you should study covenants is because it gives you a sense of history. It gives you a sense of history. Many times you get the idea that the Christian faith is is basically something that you do all by yourself in your little closet. And that's where Christianity is. You come to church to get a little refurbished, but really what's the crucial thing is in your own closet. But as a matter of fact, the Christian faith is dealing with the great sweeps, the great movements of history. In Latin America today, there is something called liberation theology. Some of you have heard of liberation theology. Liberation theology is infiltrating even the Christian missionary movement in Latin America. What is liberation theology? Well, basically it's an effort to marriage to marry Christianity to Marxism. Taking the model of the Hegelian dialectic of history with the idea of thesis, antithesis and synthesis As history moves, the liberation theology suggests that the thesis, the first movement of history, is in one direction. But that has to have a social and economic antithesis, something that tries to pull in another direction. And here you have the rich and the poor that are fighting against one another, and that has got to be resolved into a synthesis of the classless society. And that, but that synthesis then creates another problem, another thesis, which leads to another antithesis, which then leads to a synthesis. Now don't get you s- all confused here when you're thinking about liberation theology. It's really a basic, very basic, simple idea. But the way it works out in theology is that we in America are sending missionaries, not this church. Let me assure you it's not this church but some churches are sending missionaries down in Latin America with the concept that it is their Christian responsibility to put arms, hand grenades, machine guns into the hands of one class that they might destroy another class, that a new class might be created, that they in turn might enter into warfare with another class, that would then create a third or fourth or fifth class so that ultimately we would end up with the classless society. Well-meaning Christians are putting dollars into the promotion of revolution, forced and armed revolution in the name of Jesus Christ in Latin America today. Today. Now they have a concept of history. And the young Latin who has been denied all kinds of circumstances in life, who is very impoverished and who should indeed receive our help and aid that they might achieve the dignity that they deserve as men and women created in the image of God. But these young Latins, they see a purpose here, a goal. And even though it may mean their life, they're willing to throw their life down on the wheel of history because they have a sense of history and goal that is given to them by liberation theologians. Now it was my privilege just a few years ago to be sent by the PCA down to Latin America and to give a series of lectures on the covenants, very similar to what we're doing right here. To young college students, Latin college students, the representatives of 17 different Latin nations, they didn't know, and this is not their fault, but they didn't know a thing about the Old Testament. They had never heard the word covenant before, and it was amazing to me to see how God's word and God's truth took on a different light down in Latin America. They saw things in the concept of the covenant that I could not see and they latched on to that because it gave to them a sense of history that God is in motion in the world as is seen by his covenants. Now it is important not only for our young Latin Christians that are wrestling with Marxism in Latin America, but it is very important for you also to understand that Christianity is not a little backwash, not a little backwater circumstance that goes on just in your private corner, but it is something that affects the very sweep and move of human history. As a matter of fact, if you want to understand what is going on in the world today, you can do so best by having a perception and understanding of the covenants of God. A third reason why you should study the covenants, because they provide a unity for Scripture. First of all, we saw that they structured Scripture. Secondly, they provide a a sense of history. But thirdly, the covenants unify Scripture. Scripture. It's interesting to see how you have the same essence of covenant thought throughout the whole of the Bible. The essence of the covenant is in this little formula. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. The essence, the heart of the covenant. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Look at just a couple of references, at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible. First, Genesis chapter 17. You know you're right at the beginning here in Genesis chapter 17, in which God is establishing the sign of the covenant. By the way, we're going to be looking at our baptismal font one of these Sunday evenings. It's a wonderful work of art, but it's beautiful to me in particular because it has so many of the signs of the covenant embedded in it. We want to look at those signs and you want to become aware of what is happening in relation to baptism as it relates to the covenants of God in the Old Testament. But notice what God says in Genesis 17 verse 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your seed after you for the generations to come to be your God. That's the covenant. Can you imagine it? God, your God. That's what the covenant means. God, your God. To be your God and the God of your seed after you. Now that's Genesis. Now turn to Revelation, to the end of the Bible. Revelation 21. How many chapters in the book of Revelation? 22, we're almost to the very last chapter of the Bible, and we could find some references probably very easily. I could without stretching it too much, even in the last chapter, but let's take the next to the last chapter. This is the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I shall be your God, and you shall be my people. Can you see how the whole of the Bible is unified about that one theme of the covenants? It is a personal theme. You don't want to minimize the fact that in the prayer closet, by yourself alone, God is with you. That is the essence of the covenant. God will never forsake you. He is your God. And you are his people. Now, fourthly, we study covenants, and we're going to just mention these last two and maybe look at them a little further next week. We study covenants because they interrelate your total life, your work, and your worship. They interrelate your total life, Your work and your worship. Sometimes you get the idea that you come to church and people get sprinkled with so much heavenly dust and as they walk out the front door, they shake it out and then go about with their religious life. Well, that's not the way it is. The covenants bind your, quote, secular, unquote, life, your family life, your workaday world with your religious world. One of the great tragedies of the experience of the Christian is when there is a divorce of the daily work of life with the religious commitment of life. And there are all sorts of implications for that. And finally, you study covenants because they center on Jesus Christ. He is the Christ of the covenants. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8 which speaks of the suffering servant of God. And it says of God's suffering servant, I will make you to be a covenant for the peoples, for the nations of the world. Jesus Christ is the covenant. Everything centers upon the Son of God, that distinctive man who has brought Salvation to you. Who intends to bind your personal relationship to God? Who intends to mold together that perfect marital relationship? Who intends to fulfill the purposes to his Israel of old and his Israel of new, even in the 20th century? So that's why we study covenants. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come together from week to week, you will give us instruction from your word and by your spirit. You will speak to us where we need help and comfort and strength. And you will encourage us, O gracious Father, to believe that God who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That God, who has begun a good work in history, will continue it until the consummation. And so, as we think of Christ, the heart of the covenant, we ask as a final prayer, O Lord Christ, come quickly. Come and bring to conclusion that great work that you have begun at creation, and give to each one of us that readiness of the bride. Looking for the bridegroom. But we ask in Christ's name, amen.